So for the past several weeks uh, since Easter, uh, Pastor Ryan has been talking to us about uh, how God shapes us into the image of Christ, how God makes us more like Jesus, um, how God makes us into the person or the people that he created us to be. And last week he began talking about um, practices or uh, spiritual disciplines and how God uses those things to shape us into the people that he wants us to be. And so this morning we're going to talk about um, the first and along with God's word, the most important and basic of those disciplines, which is uh, the spiritual discipline or the practice of prayer. We'll be talking about prayer this morning. There's a lot that can be said about prayer. Uh, and we're not going to talk about prayer this morning uh, sort of theologically. We're not going to talk about the theology of prayer or, or very much about how to pray. Uh, but what we're going to talk about is the discipline of prayer, the practice of prayer. And the way that we're going to do that is first we're going to uh, go through some scriptures and sort of cast a vision of how, what was Jesus' prayer life like? When did he pray? How much did he pray? Uh, how important was it to him? What role did it play in his life? And then after we sort of have that vision of Jesus' life of prayer, then we're going to get into some practical things, all right? So as you can imagine, Jesus' life of prayer is going to be uh, quite amazing and humbling to us. And so after that, we're going to uh, talk about, all right, so what steps can we take, uh, given who we are and where we are uh, and who Jesus is and where he, where he was in his life with prayer? What steps can we take to become more like him? Uh, now, when we cast a vision of Jesus and when we look at Jesus praying in the Gospels, um, I think there's a danger. Uh, there's a danger that we just say, all right, well, he's the son of God, and so, of course, that's why uh, he could pray the way that he did, and I could never do anything like that. Right? Uh, the doctrine of the Trinity is something that's very hard to understand if you try to think about it apart from the Gospels, apart from the life of Jesus. Um, the doctrine of the Trinity tells us that Jesus is both man and God. Now, what that doctrine does not mean, it does not mean that Jesus is partly a man and partly God, as if he were some sort of, uh, some sort of Greek demigod like Hercules or uh, maybe a modern superhero, something like that. The doctrine of the Trinity tells us that Jesus is entirely, in every way, just like us, a human being, except without sin, and that he's entirely, in every way, God. And those two things we can't really think about at the same time, I don't think. So I'd like to ask you this morning to think about Jesus as a human being, to think about him as a man. And what that means is that when we see these amazing acts of prayer that Jesus does, we can't simply say, okay, well, he's Jesus, and so that has nothing to do with me. I can't possibly do that. And in fact, that's what the doctrine of the Trinity is all about. Jesus' humanity is all about that, is about the fact that even though he did these incredible things, 
he was human. And we, when we are fully trained by the power of the Holy Spirit, will do things just like him. Jesus himself said this several times, even though it's kind of hard to believe. So when we take a look at Jesus praying in the Bible, what do we find? Uh, we find amazing feats of prayer. Uh, a man who, as I said, almost seems supernatural. Um, the very first thing we find Jesus doing is spending 40 days in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry. 40 days fasting and doing nothing but praying he comes back from the 40 days in the wilderness, and uh, very soon after that, we see him go up on a mountain. He does this a number of times in the Gospels. Go up on a mountain and spend the entire night praying. He doesn't seem to get tired or fall asleep. Um, he just prays fervently the entire time. Uh, the first time he does this is for, uh, for the 12 apostles. Right? He prays about which 12 people he should pick. And after his night of prayer, uh, he chooses the 12 apostles, and the men that he chooses change the course of world history. A little while later in the Gospels, we see him again spending a whole night in prayer on a mountain. And after that night in prayer, he comes down from the mountain so full of the Holy Spirit that he walks across the surface of the Sea of Galilee for several miles and then is worshipped by the apostles in a boat. Again, later on, we see him again spending a whole night in prayer. And this time, he's got Peter and James and John with him. He spends the whole night in prayer. And at the climax of that night, his face and his clothing shine like the sun. And he's able to speak directly with Moses and Elijah, who have been dead, so they say, for several thousand years. Toward the end of his life, on the night that he's arrested, we see him in the garden at Gethsemane. And there he prays so fervently that he actually sweats blood, right? What could this have to do with us? And on the cross, probably his greatest act of prayer is as he dies on the cross, he prays for those who are killing him. So how did Jesus become like this? It's very tempting for us, again, to just say, well, he's the son of God. You know, he seems to love prayer. He seems almost to crave it. It seems like it's the very core of his life. And we're tempted to think that maybe Jesus was just born that way. Uh, maybe, you know, maybe he wasn't praying when he was an infant, but, you know, as soon as he was able to speak, he was probably praying, and he just always prayed perfectly, and he always loved prayer. Was that the case? Was Jesus just born that way? Now, surprisingly, the answer, I think, is no, that he was not just born that way. Uh, turn with me again to Hebrews 5, 7, and 9, which we just had read for us. And let's think about these verses for a minute. Uh, incredible verses. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. 
and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Now we've we've looked at these verses a couple of times. Uh, Pastor Ryan has brought this verse to us before. An incredible statement in the beginning there um, that he was or in verse verse eight that he was he learned obedience and he was made perfect through what he suffered. He was without sin, but he wasn't just born perfect. He was perfected. He grew in faith and in knowledge of God. He was a human being just like us. But it's not only that he learned this uh, through suffering. It's not just that he suffered and so that automatically made him better. What we see in these verses is that it's as Jesus prayed consistently in his suffering that he was made into the image of God. The first verse, it says, during the days of his life on earth. So the suffering that we're talking about here is not just the cross, right? This is talking about Jesus' entire life. So the suffering that they have in view includes the cross, but really what the author here is talking about is Jesus' suffering as he lived in this world. As he lived just like we do, he suffered just like we do, day to day, but he brought it to God in fervent and continual prayer, And that's what made him into the man that he was. Fervent, continual prayer. If we pay careful attention to the Gospels and Jesus' times of prayer in those Gospels, we can also see something else that might be surprising uh, to some of us about the way that Jesus prayed. Uh, If we pay attention to the times that he prayed, We very often find Jesus praying in the morning, in the early morning. We very often find Jesus praying at night. And we very often find Jesus in the synagogue or in the temple in the afternoon. Now, if we combine that with what we know about Jewish practices of prayer and what we know about the early church and when they prayed, it becomes clear that Jesus was not just praying sort of whenever he happened to pray, but Jesus was actually following set times of prayer. The Jewish practice um, in the first century and uh, for most of history has been to pray at three particular times of the day. Morning prayers at 9 o'clock in the morning, and we find that actually in several places in the early church and in, in the book of Acts. Uh, They also prayed at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, afternoon prayers. And then they also prayed um, in the evening, uh, right right after dinner maybe, or around sunset, depending on the time of year. So Jesus was following this, this practice of prayer that had been given to him by his community to pray every day at these particular times. He probably had done this since he was a young boy. Um, We also see Jesus praying at a couple other times, um, not at 9 in the morning, but often we see him praying very early in the morning. So 
uh, maybe even before sunrise or right around sunrise. And we also see him, as mentioned in, his, in his, some of his greatest times of prayer, we see him praying in the middle of the night. And these are two times of prayer that were sort of added on to the original three by many people uh, who were very serious about their faith. Um, a prayer time that was first thing in the morning, a very, very early, and a prayer time in the middle of the night. Uh, it's been common practice um, in different places throughout history for people to wake up, actually, in the middle of the night and pray and then go back to sleep. And we see that Jesus, at least some of the time, had added in these two times of prayer. So he's up to perhaps as many as five set times of prayer that he has throughout the day. Now that's interesting because I think some of our reaction to that might be, well, you know, that's legalistic. You know, I have to pray at, at 9 and at 3 and in the evening. And I, I mean, that almost sounds like, sounds like Islam, maybe. Uh, but Jesus and the apostles are not praying at these times because they're trying to earn their salvation or because they're trying to please God or because it's been commanded. In fact, those times of prayer, as you know, are not commanded in Scripture. But they're praying at these times because they know what we find in Hebrews. They know that it takes discipline, it takes consistency as they do this, as they practice this prayer as their way of life. God will build them into the kind of people that he wants them to be. God will build them in the kind, into the kind of people that he wants them to be through prayer. Um, and Jesus was very serious about keeping these times of prayer. And I want to, uh, I want to look at one place in the Gospels where Jesus uh, keeps a time of prayer that he has set in quite amazing circumstances. Uh, you know, we, we might ask, just how serious was he about this? Uh, you know, did he do this every single day, or, or was it kind of whenever uh, he felt like it? Uh, turn with me, if you will, to Mark chapter 1. And I'm going to read verses 35 and uh, 36. But first, a little bit of context. In Mark chapter 1, what's happened, Mark has opened up his gospel, and he's talked about John the Baptist, and then Jesus went out to be baptized by John the Baptist. And of course, after that happened, you know, heaven opened, and then he was sent out into the desert. He was in the desert for 40 days, praying and fasting. After he was in the desert, he comes back into the region of Galilee, and he begins to preach. Uh, now, it doesn't say he does any miracles at first. He just walks around, uh, I guess, yelling out to whoever will hear him that the kingdom of God is near and that you've got to repent and believe the good news. Um, and then he calls the first disciples. So this is a story where he, uh, you know, he sees uh, Peter and Andrew and he sees James and John and they're fishing and he calls them to follow him. They've obviously met him before at least once because they just immediately uh, leave their jobs and leave their families and they go to follow him. And then in verse uh, 21 and following, uh, Jesus goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath and he begins to teach. I guess the rabbi was okay with that. And so he walks up, he begins to teach. People are amazed by his teaching. Uh, they say, oh, this is a new teaching. It has authority. This is incredible. And then in walks a demon-possessed man. 
And this demon-possessed man starts screaming uh, in the church service that they're having about how this Jesus is the Son of God, and Jesus tells him to be quiet. He drives out the demon. And after the synagogue, after the church service is over, uh, he goes back to Peter's house, and he, uh, Peter's mother-in-law is sick in bed uh, with a fever, and Jesus just goes to her, and, and he helps her up, and she's immediately healed. Uh, I think this is probably why Peter's wife allows him to go traipsing off after Jesus. Um, so after that, word begins to spread about this guy all through the city of Capernaum. Uh, he's, he's driven out a demon, and he's healed Peter's mother-in-law. And so as soon as nightfall comes, which is when you're allowed to travel again, right, because it was the Sabbath, so they couldn't travel. As soon as nightfall comes, 6 o'clock, everyone brings in people that are sick. There are hundreds of people flooding into the city of Capernaum who have diseases or who are possessed by evil spirits. And Jesus just has this incredible night of ministry where he, he heals people over and over again. Everyone who touches him is, is well, completely healed of whatever sickness or disease they've had. There are all these demon-possessed people shouting crazy things about him like he's the son of God and he keeps telling them to be quiet. Um, what a night of ministry this must have been. He heals dozens, maybe hundreds of people that night. And then we don't even know how long this goes on. I, we've got to assume it goes on pretty long into the night. The spirit in the city was so electrified, you can almost feel it. They're so excited by this, this person. Who is this? Could this possibly be the Messiah? It doesn't tell us when they went to sleep, but it must have been late. And you can imagine Jesus and Peter, James, John, and Andrew all, uh, you know, sort of dropping into bed, exhausted in the middle of the night after this incredible night of ministry. And then these are the verses that are so stunning to me. Verse 35 and 36. It says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon, Peter, and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. What are you doing, Jesus? Even though he's been up half the night, even though he's just had an incredible time of ministry, there's no reason for Jesus to pray, no normal reason that we would think of at this point. He's not suffering from anything. There's no immediate need that he has. In fact, no one is suffering, right? Everyone in the entire city has just been healed. Every, I mean, as close to becoming Christians as they could be without knowing the gospel, they've all just been converted, right? I think, I think any normal person... <laughs> Any one of us, I myself, we would stay, right? We would stay in this place where everyone loves you, everyone's excited about you. Um, we, would, we would build a church there, a mega church perhaps, uh, and it would be great for the rest of our lives. Jesus has no reason to pray. He's got to be exhausted, and he will not skip his time of prayer. I think he prays every day very early in the morning with the sunrise, and he will not miss it. 
So while everyone else sleeps, he wakes up and he leaves town. <laughs> he goes out to pray where he knows no one will interrupt him. And the apostles are stunned by this. They, they have to go looking for him. They've just left their jobs and committed their whole lives to him. And um, now they can't find him. I think that part's kind of amusing. So why does he do this? Because he knows that this is where his life comes from. His life doesn't come from the things that he does. His life comes from prayer and his relationship with God. This is the very air that he breathes. This is his food. This is what he knows that he needs more than anything else. Jesus needed this. All right, so there's our vision of Jesus in prayer in the Gospels, his regular practice, his set times, his discipline. That's what built his life of prayer, is this regular discipline practice. And then it's from there, after years and years of this, that he's able to go on to these incredible heights of prayer, where he shines like the sun, where the world is shaken when he utters a prayer to God. So what does all this mean for us? I know what most of your prayer lives are like, or at least I have a good guess. Some of us have regular times of prayer, and many of us do not. I think that first of all, what it means for us is that we must, each one of us, we must have set times of prayer every day. If Jesus, the holy and anointed Son of God, thought that he couldn't have his life, thought that, thought that he would die without this, craved this, needed this, couldn't be the man that God wanted him to be without these times of prayer, how could we possibly think that we can? We must have set times of prayer. Now, that said, I don't want you to walk away feeling like you have an impossible task. You don't have to begin where we see Jesus at in the Gospels. Uh, this is What we see in Jesus in the Gospels is not the beginning of his life of prayer, but it's the end. This is the result of, of his lifelong practice. All right? I would suggest that if you do not have a regular set time of prayer every day, that you simply begin with one. Choose one of the times that the Jewish people prayed, that the early church prayed. Choose to pray in the morning, choose to pray in the afternoon, choose to pray in the evening. I would recommend that you set a particular time and stick to it. That's because, not because there's anything special about that particular time, but if you do something at the same time every day, then you do it every day. If you don't, then it's, it can be very easy to simply skip. Um, you need to uh, not just resolve to pray more, uh, but to actually build this time into your life. 
Uh, among those times of prayer that we have, uh, the morning, the afternoon, the evening, uh, for most of us, especially if you consider, uh, you consider yourself to be a busy person, if you feel like you have a busy life, I would recommend that you choose to pray in the evening, uh, probably right before bed. And that's because, um, not because it's the best time to pray, probably the best time to pray is, is more like first thing in the morning. Uh, as far as your own development and, and being awake and setting your day into, into a good path. Uh, but we're a lot better in our culture at staying up late than we are at getting up early. And it's very likely that you will miss your time of prayer uh, if it's first thing in the morning, unless you're very good at this sort of thing. Um, so if you pray last thing, very last thing at night, that's something that you know you can always do, just as long as you stay up a little bit later. Now, if, if you decide to do this, if you decide to actually enter into the discipline of prayer and set a time to pray every day, there's a few things that I want you to be aware of uh, that I want you to look out for. And the first thing is this. If you begin to pray every day, and that has not been your practice before, you're probably not going to love prayer right away. In fact, you're probably not even going to like it. And it's probably going to take a long time before you get to the place where you like it. Uh, I was visiting with one of the more experienced members of our congregation recently. And this person told me a story. And she told me that... um, her, her father was a pastor, and she told me that in his day, uh, people loved to pray. The people of her father's congregation uh, mostly were farmers, and they would come to prayer meetings after all the work of the day was already done, uh, and they would come already tired, but then they would just pray and pray and pray. And sometimes the pastor would have to get up and stop the prayer meeting this person told me, and say, you people are all farmers and you have tons of work to do in the morning. You need to go home. Uh, We'll have another prayer meeting soon, and if you didn't get to pray today, uh, then you can come back and you can pray first at the next prayer meeting. And the person who told me this story uh, said, whatever happened to that? These people loved to pray. Well, whatever happened to that is that we stopped praying consistently. Prayer isn't like, um, it's not like candy or like uh, Disneyland, where the very first time you experience it, you just love it immediately. Prayer is a lot more like exercise than it is like Disneyland. So imagine, you know, someone who's very much in shape, uh, like Pastor Ryan, Uh, who's trained themselves for a long time, and when they go out and do their exercise, they go out and run their marathon, they enjoy it. I mean, it's still work, but they enjoy it. And if they don't exercise, they crave it. They miss it. But then, of course, imagine someone who doesn't exercise at all, who's lived a life of sitting on the couch, and you put them in the gym for the first time, and it's agony, right? It's terrible. They can't possibly stand it, and you can't possibly stand to watch. That's what prayer is like. You won't love it at first. 
the second thing, second thing that I want you to watch out for is that in the beginning, and probably for a while, prayer will not seem like it's doing anything. Right? I think this is a common experience for people who try to have a discipline of prayer. They begin to pray, and then after a little while, maybe after a few weeks or a month, they feel like, you know, I, I come every night and I bring my requests to God, but I just feel, I feel like nothing's happening. I feel like no one's listening to me. My, my prayers don't get answered. I don't feel anything. And so then uh, often they give up. Um, one more story. When I was growing up, I was uh, not a Christian. My, I didn't go to church. My parents were not Christians. Um, but my grandparents were. And my grandparents tried a number of times while I was growing up to convince me about Jesus. And I wouldn't have any of that. It always ended in, in me yelling at them and tears and all kinds of bad things. Um, and then when I was 20 years old... Um, I was alone in my room uh, at college, and I was far away from any of my family. And all of a sudden, uh, God spoke to me uh, in a very real way, and I became a believer. I submitted my life to Christ. Now, when I told my grandfather, he was very, very happy, but he wasn't nearly as surprised as I expected him to be. In 2009, my grandfather passed away, and um, I spoke at the memorial service. And after the memorial service, a man came up to me who I had never met, and he said to me, I just want you to know that I was your grandfather's prayer partner during the 80s and the 90s. And he said, your grandfather and I prayed for you to become a Christian every day for 15 years until it happened. Now, I know that for some of us, that might sound like a long time. Uh, I know that for my grandfather, by the end of his life, that seemed like a very short time to wait for God to answer his prayers. When you begin to pray, it will seem like nothing is happening. Um, It will seem like it's not doing anything. Uh, But it's only after years, after many years looking back, that you'll see the results of the prayer and see the ways that it has changed the world. And the third thing that I want to warn you about or tell you about if you decide to take up this discipline of prayer is that you will probably fail if you try to do it alone. You will probably fail if you try to do it alone. Uh, for those of you who are thinking, yes, I need to do this in the congregation, um, the natural thing for us to do is just go and try to do it, uh, not to set up a, 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 another person to pray with or to try and build it into our lives. There are a few people who have a certain gift and are able to just decide what they're going to do every day and then do it every day. And even those people... Um, benefit if they have someone else to pray with, someone else to be with them. Uh, But most of us are not like that. And most of us just simply won't be able to do it alone. And so I'd encourage you not to beat yourself up over that, not to expect that you should be able to do it alone. Maybe that's just not how God has made you. Instead, 
just accept that it's a fact that you can't and plan accordingly. I would recommend that if you are married, um, you set up a time of prayer uh, with your spouse. And I know that that's a lot easier said than done. But I would encourage you to do it because the rewards are phenomenal. And if you're not married, you still need to find someone else who you can pray with, or at least an accountability partner that you can have. So we see this image of Jesus, this amazing man of prayer, this man who who spoke things to God and the world changed. The world was shaken. The world is still shaken by the prayers that he prayed. This man was a human being just like us. He built his life of prayer on disciplined daily times that he never missed. He seems larger than life, but we, you, even you, when you are fully trained, can be just like him.